Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And uh, we have two uh, doctors who are joining us today to enlighten us further about some of the subtleties of the COVID-19 and the testing and how we can assess uh, the risk and the dangers. So we have with us today a repeat guest, Dr. Thomas Lewis, who is a microbiologist and a PhD from MIT, and Dr. Michael Carter, who is an integrative physician. So welcome, guys, and thank you for joining us. Thanks very thank much you. for having us. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right. So you've got some interesting work that you'd like to share. Uh, sent me some papers uh, on one of them being the uh, diagnostic criteria, because that's, I think you run a company that does diagnostic right. testing to help people guide them through the process of determining what's wrong. And you've uh, really in the, the last year or so refined that assessment to criteria more related to COVID. So can you uh, give us some insights on what, you're, what you've uh, uncovered? Absolutely, Joe. You know, there's so much on markers like D-dimer, fibrinogen, clotting factors, autoantibodies, things that are, that are largely ignored in the mainstream. So we have a panel of about 30 markers that really clue you in to where you lie on the health disease continuum. And, and the reason why I didn't say the COVID continuum is because the brilliant talk by uh, uh, Judy Mikovits yesterday and Kent um, talked about, you know, it's really 2.6, 2.7 comorbidities that lead to poor outcomes. So really it's your chronic health status that helps you figure out where you are in the continuum for COVID risk. And then what you guys talked about yesterday again was about how the, the vaccine is, the, it's the same, it's the same thing. So whether you've had, whether you got COVID or the vaccine, your personal risk factors are exactly the same. And, and what we advocate, you know, what, what, you, what the folks said yesterday is, you know, we're educators and now we need to take action. And that's what our group's all about, helping you take action and understand where you are on that, on that risk continuum. And just for clarification, because uh, this bit interview will be posted not today, but sometime in the future. So you're referring to an interview I did with Judy Mikovits uh, and her co-author Kent uh, and Dr. Rossetti uh, yes. that was that appeared on July uh, 27th or 25th. Sorry, July 25th. Yeah, and it was it was for her new book called it "Ending uh, Plague." Ending plague, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, she's done a lot, and uh, it was it was really great to actually see her her mentor live. He's he's another whippersnapper too, uh, amazing whistleblower and guy with integrity. So glad you enjoyed it, Joe. I think um, you know Paul Ewald's an evolutionary biologist at the University of Louisville, mm -hmm. and he wrote this book, Plague Time, 
But it was like 30 years ago, wasn't it? 21 years ago, 19. 21 years ago. 2000. And I think anybody who reads that is going to get such an amazing sense for their risk factors, because what's largely ignored even in functional medicine is those underlying infections. And, and you know, Judy talked about Borrelia and Babesia. Mm -hmm. And what, what, I, what myself and Dr. Carter would like to highlight is other infectious species that are even more prolific than those are, at the, are central to the cause of chronic conditions, which then predispose you to, to poor outcomes in COVID. And I think the two biggest ones, number one, broadly periodontal disease and mm -hmm. we that with the oral DNA. And of course you're very passionate about that. And, and the underappreciated one is chlamydia pneumonia. It's a respiratory pathogen and people might 60 to 70% of the people my age have antibodies for that. And a lot of them have expression of disease, anything from Alzheimer's to heart disease to rheumatoid arthritis that can be titrated back to this organism. And very few people are testing for it. Yeah. So just to summarize uh, some of the pieces of the interview I did with Judy, um, her contention and hypothesis is that SARS-CoV-2 is not not the primary cause of COVID-19. That it's it's uh, actually only responsible for the symptoms when it's integrated with these other co-infections, the ones of which you mentioned, uh, and uh, XMRV, which is a, a retrovirus. Uh, which is in large percentage of the population. It's only when you get the combination that the, and the person's the depressed or compromised immune system that you actually develop the disease. So why don't you expand? You, had, you mentioned these others. So why don't you expand on what you're finding in, uh, in, and enlighten us more in this area? Well, I think the work with, that Dr. Carter and I are doing stems way back to Dr. Clement Trump at Harvard, who was an eye doctor who use the eye to measure uh, chronic diseases. And he was measuring for chlamydia pneumonia, Lyme, things of that nature, rickettsial diseases back in the 1980s and 1990s. And then what, what Dr. Carter and I did is did a very extensive IRB record review of Dr. Trump's work. And he was testing for C-reactive protein, an inflammatory marker, fibrinogen, a clotting marker, uric acid, an inflammatory marker, sed rate, all those types of things. So what we what we see now very clearly is a strong association between these inflammatory markers, in other words, innate immune response activity and these organisms. But what's tricky about these organisms is they don't always show up uh, from the classic acute perspective of diagnostic. You know, if you talk to any infectious disease doctor that's not functional in nature, they'll say that the IgG antibody is historic, but they're, I can guarantee you they're completely wrong. They just, they're not looking at, at, at things from a chronic stealth hidden, you know, do we think, uh, you know, chicken pox herpes zoster is the only organism that can, you know, cause problems and then go dormant and reactivate when you're immune compromised later in life. No, every single one of these organisms has a potential opportunity to go from an acute phase to a chronic phase. And some never even express acute disease. They just hang out in biofilms and will express in the chronic phase later in life. It's called crypticity, which makes it extremely difficult to create, you know, in the minds of, of doctors and researchers, the association between the disease 
and the exposure. And sometimes these exposures are congenital. They, they happened, uh, you know, pre-birth. So that's, that's really the art. So, so to paraphrase your hypothesis, the um, conventional view is that these infections, once they're, they've reached the, the ability of having generated an IgG antibody response, no longer pose a threat to the body. But you're saying that this is not true. They can contribute to these, to these others. And if so, are there any assays you can do to determine that? Or is, what's the clinical approach you would take to identify if, if, in fact, this is indeed a significant contributing factor? Michael, do you want to chime in on that one? So, yeah, so we're, you know, everyone has a baseline level of, you know, the IgG and immunoglobulin G and IgM, especially in, you know, the acute phases, but the long-term immunoglobulin uh, IgG, uh, once it is above, let's say, the normal background level, shall we mm -hmm. say, um, then we know that in many cases, especially in those who are symptomatic with various diseases, there is, uh, you know, reactivation of that virus, bacteria, parasite, what have you, you know, any grouping of these or organisms that can smolder and really cause disease patterns. And, and we also, even without doing, you know, those uh, IgG levels, you know, just on our basic platform of uh, biomarker testing, you know, blood testing, we can see um, things in the complete blood count where let's say our white blood cell count, as you well know, Dr. McCullough, you know, the, the quote unquote normal range is somewhere between 3.8 and 10.8, depending on the lab. But that's a very wide normal range. But really anything above, let's say 6.2 in, in terms of your white blood cell count, is an indicator that something is brewing. And then we, when we start looking deeper at, you know, um, the, the neutrophils, the lymphocytes, the basophils, the monocytes, eosinophils, et cetera, you know, when those values are increased or, or decreased beyond the optimal range, we can tell that there are critters <laughs> being uh, uh, unruly even though you don't have fever, chills, or a classic increase in white blood cell count. So we know that these pathogens are, are present in everyone. And it's really incumbent upon your own immune system to be vigilant to keep them at bay and stop them from replicating. One, one of the things that a study that let Dr. Me, Carter- let me, and I follow, let me just follow up with a quick question on that to Dr. Carter. So sure. the, if you have elevations in these white blood cell uh, markers, then your um, the suggestion that there's an infectious process going on. But I wanted to get back to the IgG yes. levels because this seems that they're more than a qualitative yes or no approach and that there's actually a quantitative component. Yes, and absolutely. is there a direct, have you noticed a direct correlation between the uh, level of the antibody titer? The higher it is, the, wor the more likely or dangerous or- Yes, absolutely. We see that very commonly. And even, you know, when we go into, you know, the, the deeper dive functional tests that I do, uh, say, utilizing a company like Vibrant America, which has a, a very, very robust um, pathogen panel, about 32 different pathogens. It is IgG, IgM, but it's also PCR DNA. And I know there's a lot of controversy about, 
you know, PCR uh, tests. Only so with the cycle thresholds. <laughs> yeah, it's the, yeah, the key thing is you want to keep the cycle threshold below 26. So it becomes uh, worthless once you exceed that cycle threshold. So, um, but yeah, so we're, we're doing deeper dive tests because of course the vast majority of the patients that come to us uh, have these chronic diseases that um, have not been adequately addressed by conventional medicine and they're, they're struggling and they're looking for what, what's going on. These medications that I'm on are not helping in most cases or a lot of cases, not necessarily most, but it's making them worse. So we show them what is truly the root cause that is driving their, you know, particular disease syndrome or a symptom syndrome. And because some symptoms aren't even correlated with the disease. It's just, you know, those idiopathic things. Well, ma'am or sir, we, we just don't know why you have these symptoms. Let me, uh, let me butt in for a second and just explain our own research. Now, first of all, Dr. Carter and I are not researchers. We like to fancy ourselves translators of best clinical research. And you guys talk, talked about that with uh, Dr. Mikovits is that, you know, there's some really great science, but medicine is being made. It's a business decision. So what we did is we had the opportunity to evaluate 100 people at a, a Fortune 1000 company. And based on that, we made an assumption that because of their health status, 42 of them had some sort of an infectious process, whereas, you know, the younger people and we're, we're with no symptoms, no issue whatsoever. And so we were given license to test IgM, IgG, bacterial, virals, and 41 out of 42 were positive using our testing. And now we're not looking for everything in the universe. We're actually telling the lab what to look for, what we call usual suspects. Now, some of them had IgM and IgG, and some of them just had IgG with a negative IgM. And when we treated them over nine months, everyone to a number got better. And what was remarkable is IgG levels came down. And when someone had a negative IgM, but a positive IgG and symptoms and their IgG level came down, they got better too. So, you know, that's not a, an extraordinarily scientific evaluation, but it's completely consistent with the work of Ewald, um, folks like Charles Stratton out of Vanderbilt, who's written more about chlamydia pneumonia and its three different uh, life forms. And so we're, 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 pretty, we're pretty convinced. And, and my mentor at Harvard, brilliant guy, one of the most well-read doctors uh, ever, and he said to me about 15, 20 years ago, I don't waste, I don't waste patients' money on IgM tests anymore. Yeah. And just to, just to remind people who may not be remember or familiar with the difference, IgM is a measure of acute antibody response, where IgG is, tends to be more chronic. But I'm curious as to uh, what type of treatment intervention you use for those who had elevated levels. Was it uh, dependent upon the infection you found? Or I mean, how can you describe it in more detail? So I think I'll let Dr. Carter talk about our pre-treatment program, and then I'll talk about some of the, the, the treatment strategies against chronic conditions that are more aggressive. Okay, sounds great. Well, well yeah, I mean, it, it really depends. Yeah, I mean, if it's bacterial, viral, or, you know, parasitic and so forth. Um, with me being a functional medicine doctor, and, and I started out in anesthesia, board-certified anesthesiologist, did that for 16 years. I already heard that. Uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was good though. It's, it's, an, I, interesting, I 
It's an interesting specialty because 99% of the time you're bored to death and 1% of the time it's- That is terrified, right, yeah. But I retired from that, then became a cosmetic surgeon, you know, uh, did liposuction and fat transfer, did that for about eight years and then retired from that and went into the whole functional medicine realm. And, And really the primary reason is because I was addressing one of my own issues. I have a history of glaucoma and wanted to find out the root cause because traditional medicine really wasn't helping me uh, with that, you know, keeping the pressures down with all the eye drops and and multiple surgeries and so forth. That was not stopping the progression. So that began my journey, oh, 15, 16 years ago into the whole functional medicine. Were you able to solve it? Were you able to solve it? Um, I'm keeping it at bay. Glaucoma is one of those difficult ones. Um, but I found a huge, uh, cadre of underlying causes that was, you know, pushing me, you know, I, you know, I had adrenal dysfunction, you know, stage three adrenal, uh, um, dysfunction. I had, uh, multiple parasites in stool. Uh, of course I had dysbiosis. Um, I had candida. Um, also, um, I had um, mycotoxins from mold. And of course, you know, mold is everywhere, but, you know, about 25% of the population is sensitive to mold. And that was another thing. Um, I had some dental issues um, that I didn't have root canals, but I did have um, my wisdom teeth taken out, of course, many, many years ago. And I had cavitations. So again, you know, I went down all of these different pathways, you know, ticking things off one by one and addressing those things. And, and it's, 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 it's been a journey. I mean, it's a I'm wondering if, if you've looked at uh, metabolic characteristics, because it's in my experience, typically uh, glaucoma is very similar in many ways to essential hypertension. So, and at the core of that frequently is uh, insulin resistance. Yeah. So, of course, you know, I, you know, optimize all of those things. I, you know, in the beginning, I did have high inflammatory markers like homocysteine, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Um, My insulin levels never, I've always, because I work out all the time. I do P90X. I'm a big fan of that since it began. (laughs) So I work out at least three or four times a week for, I don't know, 30 years. So um, you have your, you have your resist, resistance training too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have weights and all that stuff. So, so I did optimize all of my markers now are quite optimal. So like I said, you know, I'm keeping it at bay. Now the, the goal is the regenerative process for, you know, the visual acuity that, uh, that has decreased over the years. And I'm quite confident that that is going to occur. Michael, so, you didn't mention the subacute infections we found as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so, so many things. And of course, yes, I found, as a matter of fact, that is actually how I met Dr. Lewis, uh, what, eight, eight, at least eight or nine years ago, um, because um, Dr. Lewis was on the first um, Alzheimer's Summit um, that um, Jonathan Lansman put on. And... Um, And what caught my attention was when Dr. Lewis said that glaucoma was Alzheimer's of the eye. And of course, with me having a history of 30 years of having glaucoma and and father and aunts and uncles having glaucoma, 
that was concerning. So I immediately contacted him and, you know, we talked and, and one of the things he was asking in the beginning was, of course, did I, you know, because I was still very functional, you know, oriented when I met him. However, I did not do a deep dive with subacute infections. So I did find, find out that I had mycoplasma, chlamydia, pneumonia, um, Lyme, uh, all of these things, that, but I was feeling totally fine. You know, well, I did have some fatigue, but that was more so from the way I was working, you know, just uh, incredible hours doing liposuction and, and so forth, running multiple clinics. You know, I was really working myself into an early grave. <laughs> but, but yes, um, those were one of the other key uh, components that um, I started treatment regimens and, um, and we did find out that that, that was one of the um, inciting factors for the glaucoma. The, the biggest factor in treatment, and I, I, we can't mention specific things, I think, because everybody needs to be tested in, in such a broad array of, of causal factors. But even if you do something like ozone to kill, you know, broad spectrum anti-infective, you will not eradicate enough of the chronic phase of these organisms that are hiding in biofilm. So all I can tell people that really have chronic disease and the reason why the traditional healthcare system is successful is because it's given you instantaneous gratification of your symptoms. But to solve these things, you have to treat with something pharmacologically relevant, anti-infective, whether it's natural or synthetic, right. for long periods of time. You have to maintain a physiologically anti-infective dose. But the other piece of it, we've learned, everybody knows much better now because of COVID-19, is the inflammatory component. And there's no, no question that the inflammatory response can override, you know, um, it, it go, go too far, even in chronic conditions. There's a brilliant paper uh, uh, by these Australian groups that, that talk about uh, cytokines, uh, anti-inflammatory treatments and their clinical relevance. And the biggest problem we face is that, like if you bang your elbow and your brain at the same time with the same sort of force, your elbow will recover in a couple of weeks, but particularly the brain perpetuates inflammation much longer and sometimes uh, forever. So every treatment has to consider an infectious, has to consider lifestyle risks and help you optimize those things. But generally, there has to be a very strong anti-inflammatory component, which is not just, you know, a week of uh, liposomal curcumin. It has to be much more rigorous and, and continuous than that. Yeah. That's, that's the big challenge. I'm wondering on the uh, treatment regimens that you uh, in, uh, implemented, uh, you mentioned ozone and compared to some of the others that it was not as effective as doing it for a long term. And I'm, in my view, ozone seems to be the the most potent anti-infective that I'm familiar with, and actually, especially with related to viral infections, I I, I would agree. I would agree. Let, you, me just, uh, let, so, me, let me just finish. Let me just finish. So the uh, one of my favorite interventions for COVID is nebulized peroxide, and I've seen yes. it work. Love in, it. I've seen it work too. Probably in over 300 consecutive cases, mm -hmm. without fail. And then I finally encountered one word failed. <laughs> it didn't work <laughs> at all. And then 
jumped it up to ozone and it knocked it right out. So it would seem to me that if you were to do the ozone, and there's a number of ways of administering ozone, but it's usually uh, intravenous seems to be the most effective. You could use rectal or, or a variety of other routes. But so I'm, I'm wondering if, if in your interventions, if you had looked at basically the dose, the timing of the regimen of ozone administration, similar to what you would do for uh, uh, oral antibiotics, say for so a week, what, 10 days. So what I've, I've done, because I actually have an ozone generator um, at home, um, and but I've done the- Do you IV, IV ozone or? No, no, the rectal insufflation. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the IV is, a, is significantly more potent. I, w- I would agree with that. I would yeah. agree with that. So I actually have not had it done IV, but the insufflation I have, and I've done that off and on and noted some, you know, beneficial results. But, you know, from the traditional um, that really Dr. Trent, you know, um, really popularized through, you know, our sources, you know, minocycline, perithromycin, um, has uh, done wonders for a lot of the subacute infections. Um, of course, viral pathogens would be, you know, more, you know, antiviral uh, oh, drugs. Or, but I tend more toward the the natural herbals that, um, like, I really like the company Biobotanical Research, which has been around let, for. Let me just shift it back to Dr. Lewis because he was the one that made the comment and. If it was you, uh, based on your observations, Dr. Lewis, or based on Dr. Carter's, because if it's Dr. Carter's, I, I don't think it's at all fair to compare rectal insufflation of ozone to some of these other interventions. It really is like apples or oranges. Mm, gotcha. So, so what what Dr. Stratton at Vanderbilt has shown us is these these organisms can live in an elementary body, a reticulate body, and in some of these phases, they're completely refractory to anti antibiotic treatment, whether it be pharmaceutical antibiotic or whatever. So what happens is, and I had this conversation with Dr. McCulley, the pioneer of the homocysteine theory, and we don't have definite proof, but I'm, I'm, I'm name dropping a little bit, but J. Thomas Grayson, 95 years old, uh, preventative medicine at University of Washington. And what he showed is that you've got, to, he, he oversaw a number of studies in the 1990s One of them is called the Roxas trial. And what he showed is that when it comes to organisms like chlamydia pneumoniae, you have to treat for one year. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's scary for people. So what we do is we do three-month, we do three-month segments and then retests and obviously measure for symptoms, but also the the IgG. But, you know, uh, Thomas Barodi, um, he was on, he developed the triple antibiotic for H. pylori's, Center for Digestive Health in Sydney, Australia. We interviewed him and he said, every one of his close relatives died of arthrosclerosis and they all had chlamydia pneumonia infection. And then he said, you know, when the interviewer asked, how do you get rid of it? And he goes, you can't. And he said, but I got rid of mine. He treated himself long-term. So I think ozone, healthy fats, good diet, exercise, all these, you know, the way we look at it is, you know, your infectious burdens here and your immune systems here. We just got to change the odds. Okay. Now in acute infection, that's pretty easy, but in chronic infection, I look at them like kind of like hobos, they're hanging out in tissue where they can, you know, take up 
you know, get into the side cells or get inside a biofilm. And there's probably only a small percentage that's ever really active. So you have to keep this pharmacologically relevant level. You know, when you, when you um, take the antibiotics, for example, you may have a Herxheimer's reaction, you know, the die-off reaction, you say, hey, I'm done. But then you stop treatment and a year later it comes back because these things just like the herpes zoster is in a dormant or hidden phase. So that's why we recommend yeah. long-term treatment. You know, it's yeah, just, just the way it is. You gotta be careful with long-term treatment if you're using uh, pharmaceuticals because there's uh, frequently the, the unintended side of consequences of that intervention is, is worse than the, than not treating. Well, in you my know, experience. We, so, we, we deal with a lot of um, dementia so, people and they're older. And so like now you're trying to decide between a little gut my, microbiome disruption or their brain. So we're always making that value decision for people. So have you, have you carefully analyzed the impact of vitamin D, optimizing vitamin D levels, not just a, um, a dose intervention, which I think is foolish. And most of the studies actually take that approach. They, they fail to measure their blood levels and they just give them 2000 or 3000 or 50,000 units once a week and they never look at the blood levels. So they have really, it has to be customized to their specific physiology. So I'm wondering if you look, have any awareness of optimizing uh, therapeutic blood levels of vitamin D, the 60, 80 nanograms per ml in the United States and noticing the influence on the immune system with respect to these chronic infections. Cause it, to my mind, it's gotta be one of the simplest, easiest and least expensive ways to improve your immune function uh, and everything else. <laughs> There's no downside to it, virtually none, except for the testing process. Right. Might be a little bit of a cost there, but still you, relatively you know, expensive compared to the other options. Last time we spoke, I introduced the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. It's very simple. It's a complete blood count. Neutrophils go up with bacteria, lymphocytes often go down with virals. So it's sort of a measure of your sort of a overall infectious burden. And what we did recently, and we're putting this into a paper we'll, we'll be publishing, is we did a study of neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio versus um, blood uh, 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels. Mm -hmm. And we, shot, we saw, of, and because Dr. Carter and I work with people that are very motivated that come from you, Dr. McCullough, thank you very much. But we also work in corporations where people are less you know, health aware. So we have many, many people on the very low end of the vitamin D, 25-hydroxy mm -hmm. vitamin D spectrum. And we saw a very clear linear relationship between a bad neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio count and low vitamin D, and then just the opposite. So vitamin what, D- What was the correlation level? You know, um, I don't really have enough data, but it, it was- it was less than P equals zero, zero, 005. Okay. So good. It, it, there was some, you know, there obviously some scatter because to just try to create, you know, correlate one factor to another is very naive about human physiology, but you know. Well, that, that's good. I'm glad you looked at it. And it's not surprising that I would predict that was what you would find, but I've never really seen any correlation to other biomarkers to confirm that at least immune biomarkers. And, Neutrophil lymphocyte ratio is certainly a good one. Yep. We're, that's very interesting. The other one that's largely ignored, you know, cholesterol, since 1987, since the release of the first statin drug, it's at half a trillion dollars in, in revenue from statin drugs. 
And so cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. Very few people know what their cholesterol number is. They know what their total cholesterol is, but they don't know what their free cholesterol is. And we've done a similar correlation, particularly in cancer patients, and we don't have enough COVID to have a, a, a good cohort yet. But what happens is a, a free cholesterol is between say five and, and 20 uh, nanograms per milliliter. Is, is there, sorry for interrupting, but is there an optimum for that? Like there isn't cholesterol. I mean, the conventional medical people would say it's 150, but we know in reality it's closer to 200 for total right. cholesterol. So, so what, free, is it, what is it for free cholesterol? Free cholesterol is almost completely unstudied. It's amazing. So we're, we're starting to build this. And, and you know, you, you get that at a commercial lab. I've never heard of it before. So it's, it's, it's in the, it's in everybody's lipid profile. So you have total yeah, cholesterol, already. HDL and LDL, you just subtract it. Okay. You just subtract it. So cancer patients tend to be 50 and above. And it totally makes sense because cholesterol itself is one of the most important membrane manufacturing molecules. This mm -hmm. is Harvard talking about not only does cholesterol create the form and the structure of a cell membrane, but it also affects its activity, you know, allowing things to come in and, and out. So it is a repair molecule. So that's one of the things in COVID on our panel that we do is not just inflammatory markers, vitamin D, homocysteine, infectious, um, things of that. We're looking at things that are indicative of tissue destruction. So creatine kinase and free cholesterol are, are very important markers to tell you whether something's chewing up, chewing up your tissue. So I'm still, still a bit confused on the free cholesterol, other than now I know how to calculate it. Uh, what, is, what, is, what is your finding suggests as the optimum level? And is it um, and the higher, it sounds like if you've got high levels, you, you may be connected or associated with cancer, then lower level, are the levels too low or is there an optimum range of you? I haven't seen levels too, too low yet. Um, we're, we're thinking five to 20 is optimal. Okay. But really healthy people seem to be between say five and 12. Okay. And, that's, and then, that's, what, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Yep. And then people with, but this, this is new. I mean, Joe, I mean, I've, I, we've talked so much about cholesterol, Dr. Carter and myself, you know, uh, the target, the half a trillion dollar target in cholesterol is LDL. And all LDL is, is soap. It's soap inside your body that carries fat soluble things through a water-based bloodstream, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so it's a real, it's a real red herring. And then one day I was just saying, what is my real cholesterol? What is my, and so this has only been in the last few months and now we're going through all our data to create these correlations. So the cancer patients are, you know, I think just, just a, you know, just the tip of the iceberg in terms of people that have some, virulent infectious process that is destroying tissue, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see a very strong correlation to your free cholesterol number as just part of the portfolio of tests you want to do to investigate what the heck's going on inside your body. Yeah. So have you optimized your diagnostic strategy for those uh, with, with, with COVID or are concerned about COVID with respect to in, an increased risk a threshold or uh, even another panel that would be somewhat difficult to implement, but that can be used acutely uh, uh, in a hospital setting. Because I noticed in the papers and over, there's 
some of the potent things you found, like D-dimer and fibrinogen levels that were particularly useful in following the patient? Well, see, you know, the, the, the question about looking at things from an acute versus chronic um, perspective is an interesting question. And we tried to solve that with a very simple thing. So first of all, if you take a test now and then three months and you see the trend, that's obviously mm -hmm. a way to relate it to chronic. But in a single test, every biomarker has a half-life, okay? So um, red blood cell distribution width, because it's tied to red blood cells that are stick around for four months, much longer half-life than say C-reactive protein that if you bang your knee, it'll go way up and it'll come down with a half-life of one and a half days. Fibrinogen is seven days. So when you understand half-lives, then when you look at a single lab and they're all elevated to sort of the exact same extent above what we consider our baseline, then we know it's chronic, or at least with a very good educated guess that it's, that it's in the chronic phase. So that's, that's kind of how we do that. But there's, there's well-published half-lives. We wrote a book uh, called Quarterback Your Own Health, and we published... Um, you know, it's, it's hard to find half-life uh, data on biomarkers, but, you know, the drug companies obviously know a heck of a lot about half-life because that's what they study when they build dosage uh, regiments for their pharmaceuticals. So they're, they're pretty well known. And the, and the other key is, you know, what we really elucidate, as you well know, Dr. McCullough, in the functional medicine universe, traditional doctors, you know, on a typical panel, and let's say you are presumably healthy, it's a very, very, you know, brief panel of blood biomarkers. And of course, we expand that with the inflammatory markers that, that, that really play a role. So if your homocysteine and C-reactive protein are up, these are key inflammatory markers that many people are walking around with that are high um, and that are really directly causing toxicity to the, the vessels. So leading to coronary artery disease, leading to strokes, leading to Alzheimer's and, and a whole host of things. And, and then looking at, let's say the high sensitivity C-reactive protein, another inflammatory marker that when it's elevated is really, really indicative of pathogens in the mouth, among other things, but that is one thing that is totally missed by traditional doctors. And that is a key component you know, looking if you've had root canals or wisdom teeth taken out or bleeding gums and, and doing a test to see the, the vast array of, especially the, the bacterial pathogens that we now know are associated with pretty much every disease syndrome out there. So that's, we, we really kind of take these things that have been invisible to the masses and bring it really at, in an affordable cost structure. You know, we have a very robust panel of 55 biomarkers that runs about $150, including vitamin D, which is a very, very low price. You know, if you were to take that same panel, it would be four or $500 if you were to go directly. Yeah, because the HSCRP is in that, and that probably it is, is almost yes. half the cost of that as a commercial lab. You That's know, we've, uh, we've built, and you know, we need the our, our functional and, and more enlightened population be part of the solution. And how we do that is to, to measure. So we've, we've built a survey, very simple five minute survey, asking questions, have you, have you had COVID? How bad were the symptoms? Have you had the, um, the vaccine? What were the 
post symptoms after that? When did you have it? And then ask a few questions about lifestyle and, and chronic risk. And then we refer them to a, a, a panel that will help us create the correlation between those two um, pieces of information. Have you been, have you been jabbed? Have you had COVID? Um, when did it happen? Your symptoms and all that good stuff. But we're generally, we're looking at seven different categories of physiological markers. We're looking at clotting factors, sed rate, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, D-dimer, fibrinogen. Um, we're looking at immune health. We're looking at white blood cell counts. We're looking at vitamin D status, things of that nature. We're looking at inflammation. So we're looking at C-reactive protein. We're looking at uric acid, um, homocysteine. We're looking at comorbid infectious burden. So we're looking at the, what Dr. Carter said, what is the oral, what's your oral pathogen burden with a DNA test? What is your chlamydia pneumonia, rickettsial disease, Lyme disease, mycoplasma, things of that nature. Then if you want to go to the next level, Dr. Carter brings you into the, the mold and the other things. We're just doing a, a, a basic survey in this. We're looking at tissue damage processes. So creatine wow. kinase, cholesterol, troponin. And do you calculate free cholesterol too? We calculate free cholesterol too, absolutely. Oh, great. And then anti-nuclear antibodies. It was a great paper in nature. All this for 150 bucks? Well, those uh, this panels are... This is our advanced panel for uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this one's this one is uh, just shy of 400, but includes a complete survey, a complete one-hour consult to help you really understand what these markers mean. See, we, it's all about where do you lie on the on the health disease continuum, and we we're very accurately placing people on that. But there's not a marker we test for that doesn't have that's not modifiable through lifestyle or other mm-hmm. targeted inter- interventions. We're not treating symptoms. We're going right at these, right at these. Costs. So logistically, how does it work? Do, do they contact you, fill out a form on your website, and then do you send them a requisition to go to a conventional lab drawing site like LabCorp Quest, or do you get send them the tubes and they send them back to you, or how does that work? Oh, at this point, we're sending people to uh, LabCorp Quest, yes. Okay, and then they draw it there. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then we, we put it in our algorithm. And the important thing is every marker, we give you a very detailed color-coded report and every marker is titrated not to reference intervals that LabCorp West uses, but when does a marker show the first incidence of mm-hmm. statistically proven early mortality? And like so you're, Dr. you're not getting a report back from LabCorp West. You're getting your customized oh, correct. that, that get, provides the... Uh, the data that you've learned from. And, and it really starts with, you know, the, the initial questionnaire and we give you a grade from A to F. So we, we wanted to make it so that, you know, uh, the average person could really see what was going on in a very tangible fashion. So obviously, you know, you answer 125 questions that are much more probing than, you know, your traditional questionnaire. And if you end up with a grade of C, D, or F, then that tells you your, your report card of health is not so good. <laughs> and so that really, and then we give guidelines on you know, those questions. And then when you do your biomarker test, then we give you a temperature. It's called our chronic disease temperature. And of course, 98.6 is a normal temperature. 
So when we do the biomarkers, you know, um, and we look at optimal ranges, not just normal ranges, we want everyone to be optimal, not just normal. And, um, and then when those values are either too high or too low out of the optimal range, then you get a corresponding increase in your temperature. So now you can have a temperature of say 103 based on high homocysteine, high C-reactive protein, high fibrinogen, you know, um, high white blood cell count, what, whatever the parameters. Like I said, we're testing, you know, 55 biomarkers, but 21 of them are, we really hone in on and create that temperature setting. So now the person really has something in front of them and in spite of them having gone to their traditional doctor, getting a clean bill of health, Mr. Jones, you, all your values look great, your EKG is fine. And like in so many situations that I've had patients, friends and so forth, young people uh, a month later have a heart attack or die at age 40. And then what was missed? Well, homocysteine was never checked or C-reactive protein was never checked. And we go down the list of these things. And that's why I say it's kind of the, the invisible markers that could have been obtained, but are not. And that's really what brings all of these things to the forefront. And when you, you know, correlate to, that to COVID, again, these, we, 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 we have a little analogy of like, you know, what's in your glass. So again, if your glass is a quarter full, half full, three quarters full, you know, you could be walking around with all of these different things, like toxins, pesticides, you know, subacute infections, all of these different things, you know, but when your glass gets full and overflowing, then generally that's going to express as disease. And that's where we show where people are kind of on that continuum. How full is your glass of these different things? And, and really, really just with the biomarker panel, that gives us a great window. And then obviously based on your history and symptoms, you know, I can go into much more detail doing heavy metal tests, doing food sensitivity tests, doing GI testing, all of these different things, which also, you know, doing glyphosate testing you know, all of these things play a critical role in filling up your glass. So and how do, if one is interested in this assessment, uh, what is the process of uh, getting it done? They just come to our website, healthrevivalpartners.com. Oh, come on. It got to be longer than that. <laughs> you said the same thing a year ago, Joe. <laughs> Health Revival partners and we're because we're your partner it doesn't just happen because a doctor throws something at you it's a, it's a partnership and health is so that's why we named it that and plus you know a lot of URL, urls are already used up but you know, <laughs> of course yeah that's what happens when you get in the game two two decades late <laughs> you know, we've been in it a long time but we've been had some iteration well, but the, the domain game as mentioned right but yeah. you know if you look at the chronic disease temperature if, if, if look at the study we published in one of our papers by the way we showed we published a paper that showed that when we have a a, a bad risk score and we improve it the labs improve too it, it's not so even though the risk scoring is subjective, the labs are objective and we've shown that correlation. But the beautiful thing is for the population, most people don't understand all these labs. And, you know, we go through them in great detail, but still it, it can be overwhelming. So it's just like weight loss. You want to go from 205 to 190. You know, you, 
the main thing we want people to do is lower their chronic disease temperature, which is a single number from those 21 biomarkers. Then we can dig into the detail and see which ones have gone up, gone down, or, or stayed the same. But it, when you're moving that number down, since it's a mortality aggregate score, your risk for early mortality is going down with, with great assertion. Nothing's 100% in life. I call, I call myself a Gaussianist. So when I say that never happens, what I mean is, you know, always they're going to be outliers, you know, but, um, but, but it simplifies the whole process for individuals. You know, what Dr. Carter talked about is what Dr. Trump called the apparently well. And there are too many people walking around that are apparently well, but they're a ticking time bomb. You know, I'll give you a, a very, you know, um, a, an example that's probably, you know, I probably shouldn't use, but the, the chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente, um, Bernard Tyson, age 60, died in his sleep, massive heart attack. Was he healthy the, the day before, the week before? He wasn't healthy 10 years before. And even Kaiser Permanente, which is both the payer and the deliverer, couldn't solve this problem because medicine has become so corrupt since 1980, where drug companies have been able to contribute to medical education that they just don't know what to test for anymore. Wait, when did you say that was? What day? 1980. So no, 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 I would thoroughly disagree with you. It's 1900. Well, That's no, I know with Flexor, but, but 1910, 1910 with the Flexor report and Rockefeller and Carnegie. But it, it really, you know, in 1980, we had both um, Harvard Pilgrim HMO and then the drug companies coming in. So that that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, obviously, you know, uh, I agree with you on Flexor and the Rockefellers and all that. But, you know, Dr. Carter's the um, uh, on the medical advisory board of the Black Health Trust, and we presented on all our biomarkers, and two brave doctors spoke up. And one said, we used to do those tests 40 years ago. And then the other one said, yeah, and if we did them today, I don't think we'd know what to do with them. And that's really where medicine is today. And so- Yeah, we, it's a sad commentary, but true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and, yeah. and the other thing, of course, is there are no, especially for homocysteine, there is no medication that will address that. It's no, there's nutrients sweet. that will. <laughs> huh? There's nutrients that will. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, doing the B vitamins, the methyl B12, the folate instead of folic acid. Again, so that, you know, does wonders for bringing homocysteine levels down. And in most cases, that will. So, but again, but the, the key point with the homocysteine is, you know, the normal values, even when it is obtained, you know, the normal goes all the way up in some labs, all the way up to 20. And, you know, ideal is somewhere around seven. So when that value starts to increase, you are just having more and more toxicity to your, your vessels, which affects everything. And, and again, that the cholesterol is really not the enemy, you know, in cardiovascular disease. It truly isn't. Now, can it be problematic? Yes, it can, but in the face of inflammation. So yes, if you have a cholesterol uh, LDL that's 150 or more, et cetera, and what have you, and then you have small particles, a lot of, you know, a lot of them, you have LP little a pattern, you have oxidized LDL, all of these different things. Yes. Can it be problematic? Yes. But the key point is, as long as you address what is driving the inflammation, all of those values become, you know, um, not important again. 
So we really, again, it kind of goes back to root cause, address what is driving your inflammation, whether it's the food that you're eating. And of course, with our standard American diet, that's one of the main things, <laughs> but the toxins that we're exposed to, the Absolutely. multiple medications. We, go deep, we dive deep in that on our site. So people are quite yes. concerned. So Dr. Absolutely. Lewis, I want to thank you for putting this strategy together. Uh, and uh, maybe you can give uh, the directions if people want more information, name the, that website again, Health Rejuvenation Par Partners. Oh, Health Revival. Revival Partners. Okay, Health Revival. That's even better than Health Rejuvenation. Healthrevival.com, <laughs> which is good. Uh, and they can get access to this and uh, find out some of the hidden things that did most conventional medical physicians don't. And it's just, if you're seeing one of those, and many of the integrative medicine physicians may not, but more than likely they'll be at least be aware of it and maybe even do it in testing themselves. Maybe not with your lab, but with something similar. So, uh, and then give us any closing words you'd like. Well, you know, I, I think you made a really good point about the integrative and functional medicine. You know, they're, it's like herding cats. They, they got into that because they're, they're outliers. But I've been trying to get some of the highest level leadership in functional medicine to create a core standard of labs that every doctor takes because the, the biggest reason why functional medicine and you're not getting served well in medicine today is because the, the dark side is saying we don't have the evidence. And one of Dr. Carter and my life's goal is to herd the functional integrative cats together to build standards. And I think we've done a very good job of creating a very important endpoint standard that I think could be anybody could, could hang their hat on. That's early mortality. So we really want, we really want to do that and um, love your help, Joe, on that. And the other, the other part of it is, you know, we wrote this paper last year, peer reviewed paper, and it's, and we coined the term the pre-cytokine storm. Okay. And Dr. Carter talked about your glass being a quarter full, half full, or overflowing. Measuring your pre-cytokine storm, which our panel incorporates, and then our COVID panel expands even more, so either of those panels are available to anybody who comes to our site, will tell you really what your risk factors are. Your blood doesn't lie. And so it, what, I'm, what I'm hoping people will do is become part of the solution. Take the, take the COVID and the vaccine survey, get their labs drawn, and then we'll be able to report back to you and, and publish in peer-reviewed journals about these correlations that right now we're all being marginalized on because we're not creating enough evidence. Judy knows exactly what's going on, but to convince the world, we've got to get some conventional or more conventional data in large sets to prove our point. That's how we're going to start winning with evidence-based functional medicine. I love it. So thanks for creating this strategy and making it available to everyone because I think it's going to help a lot of people. Appreciate all your work. Thank you so much. Thank you.